Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, and welcome to the Signal Line. Today's podcast was a community remote viewing chat with Joseph McMoneagle on Friday 3rd of September 2021. Commonly known as Viewer 001 or Viewer 372, with a career spanning 38 years, Joe McMoneagle has provided professional support to the Secret Service, CIA, NSA, DEA, FBI, Defense Intelligence Agency, United States Customs, the National Security Council, and the most major commands within the Department of Defense. For this long career of outstanding work, Joe is the recipient of the Legion of Merit Award for his crucial discoveries regarding a Russian submarine. Joe is currently a full-time research associate and partner with the Laboratories for Fundamental Research and Cognitive Sciences Laboratory in Palo Alto, California. Here he has provided consulting support to research and development in remote viewing for over 21 years. He's also been a consultant to both SRI International and Science Applications International Corporation. He has participated in protocol design, statistical information collection, R&D evaluations, as well as hundreds of remote viewing trials in support of experimental research and active intelligence operations for what is now commonly known as Project Stargate. We're going to go straight into the show now. Enjoy the show and enjoy all the information that Joe shares. Have a great time. See you next time. Hi, Joe. Uh, hi there. I hope you're well. Uh, it's good to see you here. Um, we've been here for Back a while, just, just chatting. Um, so just want to say hello and welcome to you. You're still on uh, mute at the moment. I didn't get the message, so sorry. Hi there. How are you? All right. Excellent. It's great to have you along here. As you can see, we've got uh, 74 people in at the moment. Uh, wow. A Amazing. lot of people here that were are, are waiting to ask some questions. That's fine. Excellent. So if you guys, uh, what we usually do is we usually ask the people to uh, put their hand up in the participants window if you want to audibly ask a question if you don't uh as they have been doing already we got some questions here in the uh in the chat notes for you and we'll okay. get to those as well let's uh start either place excellent yeah so uh deborah would you like to go first okay uh because my question came up at the apropos moment when we're talking about drawing drawing the um provision to get from the rv because I don't know what, what it is, but since I started asking questions to the universe, to the spirit, I get led into mathematics. And lately, I've been watching videos about the Fourier transform and uh, the sine wave um, function. And uh, it really caught my attention when uh, it was said that any function can be expressed as a sum of sine waves. So 
And then the videos were showing the Fourier transform being used, adding together vectors to create drawings. And you can draw anything with a combination of sine wave vectors. It's brilliant. So here you are. And, and the thing about what's going on is this Fourier transform can be applied in higher dimensions. So you've got quaternions in four dimensions. You can apply a Fourier transform to it. So you can draw things in four dimensions with a combination of certain waves. So when we're remote viewing, we're, we're viewing resonances, right? We're viewing waves. And then we're drawing pictures that are given to us from our impressions of those waves. Just like a four-year transform, like exactly. Deborah, yeah. Deborah, I, I just want to say um, you're taking a long time and it's very hard to understand you. Your microphone's not very good. I wonder if it might be easier oh, if, you, sorry. Um, if you type your question. Is that better? Yes, that's better. Uh, better. Yeah, can you... Can we get to the point a little bit faster? Yes, I'm, I'm almost there. Like what I'm saying is there's a structure to the resonances that we receive as remote viewers. They're all in waves and the drawings that can be made from them are made by the um, decay rates from the diff from the pure resonances. So it's just the pure resonances that give us the drawings. So I think there's some connection between this Fourier equation and what's going on in your brain. There's a geometric, uh, something that interprets the, the waves geometrically in your brain. And I have an idea what that is. I think it's in the microtubules that uh, Stuart Hameroff and, and Roger Penrose talk about. And they are Fibonacci spirals. They have geometric uh, construction. And this is kind of the direction I'm going with where the action is taking place when we're receiving the signal and how it's being uh, deciphered. It's very mathematical. And it really makes sense that it's resonances. And then if your brain is resonating and traveling through time at the speed of light, all that information- Ma'am, ma we have Joe McMonagle on, who is the greatest- I'm, I'm gonna, and We want I'm to hear you talk. We want so to I'm just wondering what Joe thinks him. of that. What do you think of that? Well, since- you're telling me all this i i don't have much of a chance to evaluate it but i can tell you that in remote viewing it has more to do with whether or not you have any connection at all to the target that's what it has to do with and whatever that connection is and i can tell you 50 years of research does not give us any clue as to how the information gets to us or neither does it tell us anything about that connection. 
what I can tell you is that uh, if you have connection with the target, then you're going to get whatever you need to draw things. And most of the time, most people will receive from their subconscious something very similar to whatever the target might be. And you don't want to draw what your subconscious gives you verbatim. You want to draw what it implies. In other words, if you get a picture of a, of a swimming pool, you don't want to draw a swimming pool because it might be a sewage processing plant. You want to draw what it's implying, which is a container with some kind of fluid in it. Yeah, like just the basic outline, the shape, which is what I'm saying is a mathematical construct. And so... Well, there, there is no mathematical concept. No, I haven't seen any. Are, I haven't are, seen any proof for a mathematical concept. I mean, you could say that God's a algorithm, but there's no proof of that. So, well, all I'm trying to say is that there's a mathematical formula that seems to outline what might be happening. That that's sort of all I'm saying. It just okay. It's a real process because it, it can be expressed mathematically. Well, if that works for you, that's great. Yeah, thanks. No problem. Thanks, Deborah. Uh, Mark, you had your hand up next. Mark Turner. Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, Joe. Uh, good to see you again. Hi, um, somebody posted a video today of this amazing uh, man who has just an, an incredible memory. Uh, so he's a, a synesthetist, right? He has synesthesia. He experiences uh, like different flavors for different senses and stuff. And uh, I've heard it said that remote viewers uh, or synesthesia, people who have synesthesia are tend to be good remote viewers. Now, you are a synesthese, right? Have you ever talked about that? And what, how do you experience this? And how do you think it uh, flavors your remote viewing? Would you like to talk about that? Well, I could talk about it, but it would take up the whole oh. uh, hour. Um, <laughs> synesthesia, well, briefly, then. Is very common. <laughs> synesthesia is very common with a lot of different people. Uh, it's usually people who uh, hear music and see colors or uh, when they uh, when they have to count through something, they have an, uh, more of a, as uh, Deborah was just saying, more of a algorithmic or mechanical kind of issue with it. Um, synesthesia is common with psychics. It's also common with remote viewers because psychics who do remote viewing or of course doing a remote viewing that has no uh that they have no access to in other words they're doing it blind in some fashion so uh, it's common that's all i can tell you that's all we know um some people have it some people don't people who seem to be uh you know dealing with some form of synesthesia are probably more psychic than others that's what we know right now, but that's all we know. It doesn't mean you'll be a great remote viewer. Great remote viewing comes from lots of practice and getting to understand what it is your subconscious does, what mind does. Um, there's lots of things you can do to improve the discipline of the mind. It's why I always call it the martial art of the mind. Uh, but if you don't spend time polishing that capability, then your remote viewing is probably going to not be as good as it could be. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
Uh, before we move on to Kiao, uh, just follow on uh, what you were talking about there, Joe, with the martial art of the mind. Um, and this is a question from uh, David on on uh, the Reddit kind of forums. Um, he wondered if you were ever going to publish or describe your Joe RV method. And I say it links in because I, I remember reading that you uh, <laughs> you wrote a, your book or something called, was it Martial Art of the Mind, a, a proposed training program in 1984? And I wondered if that was ever going to hit the shelves or be out there. Yeah, I, I made an attempt at remote viewing secrets is, is, is the title of the book. And I talked about how I viewed remote viewing at the time, which is pretty rudimentary. Um, it's become a lot more sophisticated over the years since I've worked down uh, probably three decades with the labs doing the research and uh, remote viewing is a lot more complicated. Uh, the discipline of the mind that I'm talking about is if you can't, if you can't empty your mind completely, um, then what you have in your mind is going to interfere with what you receive. If what you receive is something that isn't exactly what the target is, then you have to do some form of negotiating with your subconscious to figure out what it might represent. Uh, a lot of people think, uh, based on the Ingo Swan methodologies that Ingo taught, Ingo said, well, uh, the time I spent with him in the lab at SRI, what he basically, his, his, his uh, proposal was, that if you can't cut out the processing, then you don't get good information. The problem is any information you get is already processed by the fact that you understand you got it. So we have a tendency to say what we feel like uh, it means. And in many cases, we're wrong. So uh, what happens is uh, we assume that people are all the same in the way we receive information and that we evaluate it the same way. And in fact, we don't. Um, a lot of people receive information and process it differently than other people. Uh, what you have to understand is that the subconscious has no language of its own, so it borrows from the conscious mind. And so the information that's given to you is whatever the subconscious can find that's similar. And the problem is a lot of people don't have the same, uh, the same file system for uh, the same information. In other words, things are different for many different people. Uh, when you say boat to someone, it doesn't mean the same to everyone. Some people will presume it means a dinghy and some people will presume it means a yacht. And yachts are way more sophisticated than dinghies, so you get a lot more information out of yachts. But it doesn't you you have to you have to try to uh form some some kind of a discipline in your own mind where you have an understanding for uh how you process the information that your subconscious delivers to you uh do you analyze it up or do you analyze it down do you go through some kind of a retro evaluation system over what your subconscious is telling you, or do you become more complicated um, in your evaluation of the information? Uh, what I have found, I've developed uh, the methodologies that I use, I've developed over probably three decades. So it's not going to do anybody else any good. Um, 
I could teach it to somebody and you look at me like I was nuts, but uh, everybody has to figure it out for themselves. And that's why practice is absolutely necessary. Um, as you practice, you find things out about how you think and why you think certain ways and you manipulate that as, uh, in some specific format so that you come to an understanding about targets, but everybody's different. Um, Ingo had a, had a lot of interesting things he was pursuing and, uh, some of them, he kind of had the right slot, but he didn't have the right view of what it meant. Um, we took all of his material to, uh, people who are professional in, uh, in the way they present material. Uh, there's a whole study of things out there by professors on how they present material for full, a more fuller understanding. And, uh, it, a lot of what Ingo said might've been on the, the, in a primitive way, might've been on the right track, but he made his own interpretations of it. So it wasn't as, uh, as accurate as he believed it was. And, and, and there's a lot of people that just don't agree one way or the other. So, you know, I, I was with six viewers and all six viewers did a different way of viewing, you know, they had a different way of viewing and they had a different way of understanding what was going on in their own minds. So that's, that's good enough. Yeah. If they could present it as material, that was of value. Just as a small follow on question. Um, I also read and I got a report that uh, and I think Paul verified this, that some of some of your data that you did write for your uh, for your manual, not manual, your training method you proposed at the time in 84 did actually make its way into the military uh, CRV manual as well in, in, in the beginning stages of what I believe. Yeah, it's true. It did. And everybody denied it. So, right. you know, I presented all that back then, but um Everybody said, no, 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 we didn't use your stuff. We didn't steal your stuff. We didn't manipulate it in any way. But it was used like right along with everybody else's material. In fact, the materials that are taught today that came out of the military unit had uh, have, have some similarity to Ingo Swan's training methodology, but they're not his training methodology. No one actually knew why he did things. He didn't keep notes. He didn't share notes. He didn't give anything to the military when they let him go. Uh, in fact, that was one of the big, uh, the big blowups between him and the military is he refused to give over any of his training materials and he took them with him. And so all we have is what everybody thinks he, he meant or thinks he was trying to accomplish. And, uh, that's one of the reasons why the military fired him is because he didn't share any of that and he didn't keep good records. And uh, he wasn't about to. He wasn't going to give his methodology up. He felt it was too important, which is a very ingo kind of thing. But, you know, I knew him. I, I worked with him for a long time in the lab, and he and I got along great. And it's because I never used his methodology. If I used his methodology, we probably would have never gotten along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, me and you have had uh, private emails on this as well, and I've I've expressed this to the the, the CRV community. I've actually 
I think found enough documentation now in the Stargate archives and in Ingo's files to actually confirm what you've been saying along these lines for years as well. Well, Dad, I'll, I'll tell you, Dad, you haven't found the, some of the, the meaner things that were said. <laughs> we, we try not to publish or expose or share a lot of the stuff that is just angry, uh, you know, mean nasty stuff that people say about other people and uh, a lot of that was flying around at the time so um you know we just prefer not to get into arguments over stuff that's bs (laughs) yeah it's just not worth it Uh, absolutely still goes on today but hopefully we can uh bypass that and having so many in the community here you know 77 people uh all using all different types of methods here in, in, in this group, you know, natural to trained. And yeah, so it's, it's a good combination. And I think the community can get past that to a certain degree. Well, the methods are fine. You know, I have said my entire life and every, anybody that knows me will validate this. I have said, if you want to do remote viewing, standing on your head in a bucket of mud, whistling Dixie through a straw in your left nostril while wearing a tutu, if it works great. That's a methodology. The only thing you have to do in order to claim that you're a remote viewer is you have got to follow the protocol that was developed in science. And there's only one, and that says you have to be blind to the target. Aside from that, there's nothing else. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for that, Joe. Um, Kiao, you've had your hand up for a while. Do you want to go next? Uh, this will be quick and easy. It's really great to see you, Joseph. I wish you the best for a super long life. And uh, I heard that you had gathered a group of uh, viewers together because, of course, you're retired. Is there a company we can look for if we want to pay for some information to try and have them do a session? Actually, that's a rumor, and none of it's true. I am retired, and there are a couple people that I've worked with in the labs. Oh, golly, probably 30-plus years. And there's one or two of those people that are doing some favors for me. Aside from that, I don't know of any company of remote viewers or, or band of remote viewers that, you know, that you could hire or go out and, and uh, have, have them do some work for you. Um, the only reason I retired is because I'm tired. I've been doing remote viewing for almost 50 years, 47 years. I, I mean, one of the few viewers that's done the remote viewing in the lab, all three labs. Um, and and uh, I will still occasionally do remote viewing in the lab when we have something that we're working on that's serious. Um, but for the most part, I've stopped doing the, the things like missing, missing people, finding bodies, you know, all these kinds of things that I just burned out on. Uh, you know, I, I just... I just get too many visits from uh, people in different agencies and I want to try to stop that because I'm tired. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Excellent. Uh, John, John A, you're up next. Hey Joe, how's it going? All right. Um, I was just curious uh, if you could maybe mention or discuss what your most interesting target or project or experience was remote viewing or at Monroe. And um, the other question I guess maybe you answered was if you had any more predictions like you'd put out before, but I guess maybe you're getting away from that. Um, the, 
probably the most interesting thing I ever got involved in was uh, 14 months I spent with Bob Monroe in the lab, uh, in his lab, uh, learning to control out-of-bodies. And then uh, the military tested me in an out-of-body scenario, and then they tested me in a real viewing ceremony a situation where they tried to compare the two. Um, I personally think the remote viewing is more valuable because you're totally blind. Uh, in the out-of-body sense, you can't be blind because they'll hand you a picture of a building somewhere and ask you to go find it. Um, that's not easy. You may have to do six or seven out-of-bodies in order to find the building when you find it and you produce exactly what it is they're looking for, then they think that you must have gone and researched it. So the way I dealt with that is I took an object that they wanted me to report on, and I just reduced it to about one-fourth its original size, and I re reconstructed it using light fiber instead of copper wire. And... Uh, and they told me to never do it again. And I had to sign a whole lot of non-disclosure agreements. And uh, it scared the hell out of them. So they don't want you doing out-of-bodies. Um, I guess that's too much. Uh, it bends, bends the rules too much. But the, uh, <laughs> the effort didn't fail. It, it worked really well. The, the stuff I learned from Bob Monroe worked really well. And uh, I don't do the out-of-body stuff so much anymore. Uh, it's just too much work. You, you get something, and then they say, well, that's not good enough. We really needed this. And now you got to go do another out-of-body and go to the same building again. So it's a waste of time and effort. Remote viewing, I like because everything's connected to everything else. There's some integral um, network of information that, you can pick almost anything in the world and it's all interconnected in some way to everything else in the world in some indirect way. So if you have a starting place in the remote viewing world, you can go just about anywhere and find just about anything. So, you know, why, why waste your time with going out of body? Um, it's just that the accuracy in remote viewing is, uh, sometimes extremely good and sometimes extremely bad. Probably the best target I ever did. Uh, I did a series of targets in Japan over six years. I looked for 28 missing people on on 14 uh, two-hour specials and uh, found exactly half. These were people that the police couldn't find and neither could private detective agencies. And in fact, two of the people were dead and I found where their ashes were buried. Uh, one wasn't even in Japan because nobody knew he was Korean. He'd been raised a Japanese since he was a month old. And I found his ashes in Busan, Korea. So, I mean, those are tough, really tough targets. The remote viewings for those usually average around eight to nine hours. And uh, I don't usually do much except draw and talk and uh and then they turn it all over to a a uh, a detective agency in tokyo and uh what's funny is the detective agency is probably the best detective agency in tokyo and when we first started they refused to handle my 
remote viewing because they said it, they don't do, we don't do psychic stuff. Uh, they were they were embarrassed. They they didn't want to handle it. And when they saw the first show, uh, the head of the detective agency came over to the studio and said, "No, no, I think we could probably handle Joe's stuff." And uh, so they make a big deal out of it, you know. Um, but uh, I my detractor said that uh, it would have been easy to find fourteen people in Japan because. Uh, Japan only has four or five major cities and most people live in the city. And, and what's weird about that is out of the 14 people, nine of them were not even in Japan. They were everywhere else, but they were in China, uh, Philippines, America, Europe. <laughs> so it doesn't matter where they are. They're easy to find. Um, some of them still had uh, police warrants on them. Not for a good reason, but because the police thought there was something uh, something uh, uh, bad had happened to them, and uh, they were trying to locate them for their families. Uh, anyway, th those are the ones I'm proudest of because they were the hardest. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. Just as an addition to that, um, is finding people are obviously you know that was a that was a major problem within. A military unit, the, the search problem. Is there any special technique or or additional tool or anything you use to, to find people, or is it just your usual process? Just my usual pros, process. Process. Um, I uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and every turn that if I say you got to make a left turn on this road, I always draw that turn. Um. If I say they're in a certain city, I draw at least five buildings to identify the city by. And I try to put the buildings where they are actually located in the city. I always draw an outline of the city, say what's surrounding it, uh, what, what sits on its borders. Um, I draw the buildings as detailed as possible and say what's around them. Uh, I always give them where the subway system runs in in connection to where all the rivers and and creek beds and things like that run i put in the subway stations uh usually clinics and hospitals tv um tv studios sometimes uh, i put in identifiable objects um and then I give them a starting place. I tell them exactly how many kilometers or portions of a kilometer they have to go to make turns. Uh, in one case, it was an older guy who had left his home. He was uh, suffering from, uh, I can't remember what the cancer was that he had, but he was suffering from a cancer and he left his home because his family were not taking care of him well enough. And uh, they were looking for him. And so I couldn't find where he was because he kept moving. Uh, he kept moving from house to house. And so what I did is I told him what the hospital was that he was going to for his treatment and where they should park. And the first nurse they saw, they should stop that nurse and show her the picture of him and ask her to uh, describe where they could find him. And so they parked where I told them and, well, generally where I told them. So there was some missing 
bits there, but they parked where they thought I told them to park. And when they saw the first nurse, they showed him the picture and the nurse showed her the picture. And the nurse said, Oh yeah, I know where he lives. He lives right down the road here because he comes in here on a regular basis for treatments. And so they went down the road and rang the doorbell and he answered the door. He was staying with a friend. So, you know, stuff like that, it, it just works out when you do the viewing, you get the answers to how to find them. That's what I do. So. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. I think that's going to help quite a lot of people looking in that direction. Uh, Dick, you, uh, you had your hand up next. If you'd like to go next. Yeah. Uh, Joe, Dick Allgaier, it's an honor to talk to you. If I could ask uh-huh. two questions, one real quick and then one a little longer. When you do this work, is your, are you closing your eyes? Are you getting visual, experiential? you seeing it? I, I see a lot of things, but I also, I also get taste, a lot of taste. I get a lot of, uh, a lot of familiarity with the area. Um, you know, taste, feeling, perceptions, uh, it's, uh, everything it, it's reached a point where it interferes with some of the things I do because like right now, when I'm talking to you, sometimes I close my eyes because I'm trying to recapture something I'm telling you about. You, uh, you just answered my second question. Yeah. I don't, I, that, you know, yeah. My, my next question was going to be, uh, I heard at the time you shook hands with somebody and said, oh, this guy's a murderer. Uh, uh, you heard the story. I heard that story. But the, the, when you sit down to work a formal target, you address it within a structured methodology, and that opens a communication pathway with your subconscious. When you do that enough, it tends to stay open. So my question is, what's your the thousands of thoughts you think a day can you identify when it's coming from your subconscious? Can you identify those special thoughts and what's the texture of, of those? I, 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 I guess you're probably just doing that constantly. Yeah. I've done this so much that all I do is close my eyes and empty my mind. And I got challenged on that while I was on one of the shows in Japan. And I made a comment. I said, when I empty my mind, my mind's completely stopped working. And somebody on the show said that's not possible and so they took me to nippon university in uh, tokyo and uh, introduced me to a uh, a professor there his name is um i'm not gonna remember his name now um moriakai is his name and professor moriakai has done studies of meditators for almost 40 years and he made a comment that my comment was wrong because he had been studying meditators for 40 years and no one had ever been able to stop their mind from working. And so I said, I would demonstrate it. Well, it turns out he was one of two places in the world with 128 channel bilateral EG. And so the next time I went to Japan, they took me to Nippon university to his lab and wired me up with 128 channel EG. It's a bilateral EG. And um, when you're, when you have this equipment on, it's impossible not to measure something in the mind. The entire mind is measurable down to the brainstem. That's in the base of the neck. 
anything from the base of the neck up is measurable and it's shown in different colors, which represent different frequencies. And of course things change color because different frequencies are changing. So I gave him a, a plan. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into your mu metal shielded room and I'm going to close my eyes. And the first thing I'm going to do is meditate and then empty my mind. And when my mind is empty, uh, the next thing you'll see is the mind will relight and you'll see the input coming in for the remote viewing and I'll do a remote viewing. And I did that. And, um, and I told him the only thing that I will tell you is you numbers for when I'm stepping in each of those windows. And so when I, I did this and they filmed everything, he had a great big 80 inch TV screen on the wall where they had an outline of the skull and or a head and they were showing my brain activity in that uh in that large screen and when i came out everybody was dead silent and i said what's going on and they said well have a seat we'll replay it for you and uh when i said that i was going to uh, empty my mind you could see the entire outline of the skull on the tv slowly drop away everything until it was completely dark. Now, does that mean my mind was shut down completely? No, there's probably something going on in there, but it's so low power that the 128 channel bilateral EG could not pick it up. Um, Moriakai was absolutely stunned. He had never seen that happen before. Um, so he went in his office and he came out and he said, a great gift given is needs a great gift returned. And he gave me two block prints off the wall in his office that I had, a, uh, I had commented on when I met him uh, before the show. Um, the block prints are by one of their national treasures. And uh, you have to wait eight years to get one. And he gave me both of them off his wall. So I have them in my office. Yeah. Do, do you do that as a prelude to your remote viewing session? Is that your cool down? That's my cool down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all I can tell you is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mental discipline. You, you work hard enough at it. You can do this stuff yourself. I mean... There's nothing, there's nothing really difficult about it other than doing it over and over and over until you get to a point where it doesn't, you, you don't, you don't command anything. It just happens. Um, you, you just enjoy it. Remote viewing for me is, you know, it, it's the same thing as just sitting down and drawing pictures. I mean, I don't have any problem doing it. Uh, because I've been doing it for so long. I'm tired, but aside from that, it's easy stuff to do. And don't, don't think it's perfect all the time. I get it as wrong as everybody else on occasion. And when I'm wrong, man, I'm really wrong. And I'll tell you one target I've never been able to do, and I probably never will do because I don't care. It's a waterfall. I like seeing waterfalls. I don't like visiting them in a remote viewing sense. Is that all your questions answered, Dick? 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Joe. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Thanks for these guys. Uh, and Erica was up next. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. And uh, yeah, it's really great honor to be able to ask a question to you. Um, actually, the Calder pretty much asked my question. It was if I mean, you've done remote viewing and all forms of it for such a long time, has it, been, has it become part of your DNA? And apparently, as you described, it has. Um, a follow-up to that would be, um, just from my personal experience, is there any correlation that you have um, noticed uh, or know any research about uh, the dreaming, the subconscious uh, when we are dreaming and the remote viewing, any correlation there? I can tell you there's a lot of correlation to dreaming. Um, it's, It's a lot easier to do a remote viewing in the dream state because you're not you're not bound by normal rules when you're in the dream state as long as you're awake and aware in the dream state when you're awake and aware in the dream state it's very easy though to overdo it um if you attempt to do too many things in a lucid dream state what happens is you start having uh what i call false awakenings and false awakenings can reoccur multiple times, one after the other, to the point that you begin to wonder whether or not you're ever going to get out of the lucid dream state. If you don't have a very strong uh, mental composition, then you're probably going to have problems with it. Um, it'll scare you in some, some ways. But um, we, we attempted doing some experiments with dreaming, lucid dreaming, and remote viewing, and they were spectacular remote viewings. The problem was the recurring false awakenings. And uh, we decided to curtail the research because it was just too dangerous for people who might uh, might not have a strong constitution. Excuse me to ask, uh, to intervene, to ask. It wasn't, uh, you didn't write it, you didn't write about it in your book, right? Because I read your book, I don't remember no, I did not write about that. My book. Is this information available anywhere? Just research? It's mostly research, but it, the problem is I don't, I don't generally oh. write about things or encourage things that I think are going to be dangerous from a psychological standpoint. Okay, thank you. The reason why I ask is because usually when I um, when I get into the mode of thermal viewing, I tend to go through my dreams for some reason. They just come in files and fragments. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's some other correlations with dreams and remote viewing, and that's why I asked. So thank you very much for the answer. Uh-huh. You're welcome. Thanks, Alicia. And Pablo, you're up next. Thank you very much. Joe, first of all, it's really great to have you here. And my, my question is more related to one of the, the memorable passages from one of your books where you, you were tasked uh, on going to Mars, right? So I'm not going to ask about that, but if you have had any similar experience where you were, you know, meeting something like that or were drawn in a session, like, like someone was like calling you mentally and having like conversation or simply your attention was drawn to a target you were not originally planning to do? Um. It depends. Um, sometimes, 
sometimes the way I speak uh, leaves one with the impression that I'm talking to people that might be in a location, but I'm not. Actually, what I'm doing is I'm talking to a, a higher self, and I'm inquiring in some specific direction and wanting answers, and I usually get the answers through my subconscious. Um, my sense of what was going on in the Mars targeting was that uh, that the the people who used to be or, or used to exist on Mars uh, tried desperately to save themselves through some form of uh, uh, you know uh, long sleep or something. They they tried to uh, uh, hibernate if they could until they could be saved, and it was a failure. Um, they the people on Mars looked very 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 similar to humans. Oh, they were much larger. Um, the, the, the summation of the entire remote viewing was that uh, it was my feeling that, uh, that the people that occupied Mars at one time were probably human. Given that that is true, um, I think that uh, we humans are probably the true aliens on this planet. And it, there's a number of other reasons why I say that. And the primary ones are because uh, it's the human animal on this planet that is so destructive to it. Uh, we don't have any care one way or the other about what happens to this planet that is our home. Uh, even, even wolves care more about the home planet than we do. Uh, and the only reason why we are probably that way is because we're alien to it. Um, we're the only animal on the planet that has lots of extraneous uh, uh, DNA. Uh, no other animal does. Uh, we do. So I don't think we're originating from here. Uh, in any event, we, the things, the changes we would have to make right now to reverse everything that's happening to this planet is not possible. And the reason why is the only thing that's affecting the destruction of this planet right now is too many people, too many babies are being born. So the human race alien as it is to this planet is not prepared to make the changes necessary to prevent the, the uh, planet from trying to save itself. In other words, we're doing the same thing here that we did on Mars. So, uh, thank you very much for sharing. Mm -hmm. As a follow-up, Joe, um, have you ever been tasked or with a remote viewing of any of the other planets, like like the Moon or anything? Seen anything else? Sure, um, lots of stuff. I've it's probably on the internet somewhere. <laughs> People put all my stuff on the internet. Uh, never asked but they just put it on the internet um yeah there, there's a lot of things that that uh i've been targeted on for other planets and stuff i can i can't remember a lot of the stuff because some of it is tasked uh, by people who have paid me a great deal of money for it and i don't usually talk about the stuff that i get paid to do yeah. um i never talk about my clients ever 
Um, so if it shows up in one of my books, then it's probably worth talking about or I'm okay with talking about it. But the things that I may not talk about are things that usually I got paid to do. And so I don't feel, you know, I don't feel I'm at leisure for talking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, next up is Alicia. Hi, Joe. Uh, thank you so much for your service. And also thank you for coming on. Thank you. Uh, I have just uh, two questions. Um, so when you discuss the importance of knowing the subconscious so that it does not interfere with RV, it sounds similar to the Buddhist idea of seeing clearly through Vipassana meditation. I know Sean McNarma mentioned one of his books about a Vipassana meditator uh, named Dipama, who, through clearing her subconscious, was able to obtain cities such as walking through walls. Do you have experience with that type of meditation? And if not, what methods are you using to see clearly? Well, I, I think uh, the walking through walls is, is almost entirely an out-of-body effect. So... Um, it's not hard to do in the out-of-body state. You can walk through any wall. doesn't matter if it's stainless steel, titanium, or wood, or anything else. Um, there, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that are misinterpreted um, by, you know, by the way we see things today versus the way they were back when they were happening. Um, I think that uh, I think that you could just about achieve anything you want to achieve uh, meditatively. Um, I'm trying to think of a way of putting it. Uh, for me, remote viewing has become uh, an end state in terms of uh, in terms of preparing your mind for doing a certain thing. And uh, there's a lot of additional benefit out of that. Everything from uh, health, pain control, to all kinds of other things. Um, I just I just recently had some problems with my uh, left femur. It, it turns out that it was uh, crushed at the top, and I didn't know it. So I, I did two and a half weeks of rehab walking on a crushed femur. And uh, no one understood that that's what was going on. Uh, none of the doctors that did uh, all the tests, they kept saying it looked like a stress fracture to them. And uh, when they got everything straightened out and figured out what was going on, I got to have a steel rod put down the center of my femur to straighten it out. But And they reconnected it to the hip with another piece of steel. But... Um, then I went back to rehab and the rehab was certainly a lot easier. Uh, but they couldn't understand how someone could do a rehab on a crushed bone, a major bone in their leg. And it's because pain has been something I've tried to control my whole life. And so it's not, it's not something I even pay any attention to anymore. Um, so when you break a bone, you need to pay attention to it. <laughs> so it's, it's, 
mental discipline can take you anywhere, can do anything. Uh, it's incredible what it's capable of doing. Uh, in the martial arts, the discipline of the mind is what drives you to the top in the competition because you know what your the opponent's going to do before they decide to do it just simply by their eyes. Um, there, there are just so many things that you can learn about yourself if you can achieve the mental discipline required to do really good remote viewing. And, and I, I'm just saying that because if everybody can achieve that kind of mental discipline, then there's nothing you can't achieve, you know, anything you want to do. You want to write, you could be a writer. You want to do almost anything. You can do almost anything that way. So remote viewing is good in my mind for everything to include remote viewing. Uh, thank you. Um, do you think by acting in uh, high morality and ethics, it's easier to obtain profound meditative states? Uh, Absolutely. Think Let me answer that real quick. Um, there's one thing in life that you cannot delegate to anyone else ever. That's your personal morality and your personal ethics. You cannot delegate that to anyone else to make decisions for you. Um, anybody who thinks they can do that needs to have their head examined. Um, it's one of the reasons why working with a lot of these agencies is uh, not as advantageous as it might seem uh, because you, if you don't or you're not willing to delegate, delegate your personal morality and integrity, then you're going to be in a argumentative state for most of your life, <laughs> uh, especially with these agencies and things, people. Um, it's something you want to always take care of. It's the one thing you can't give away, the one thing you can't delegate, and it's the one thing you can't fix once you've sold it. If you understand what I'm saying. Uh, yes, I think I do. Um, or, I don't know. <laughs> you had another question you were going to ask. Um, yeah, do you think there's a certain, well, I think you kind of answered it a little bit, but uh, do you think there's a certain threshold that an immoral or unethical person cannot get beyond an RV um, or just any psychic work? And it's a threshold that maybe is not spoken about, maybe because it's rarely obtained or if the people that have obtained it aren't necessarily talking about it? I think, I think you're right. There is certain things that they will never reach without good morality and good ethics. It's, it's, um, they fail simply because they don't recognize it when it's happening. Uh, you have to maintain a good ethical and moral background in order to grow, just grow in general. So um, it certainly occurs with uh, remote viewing as well. Um, sorry, I just, I'm going to ask one more question. I apologize. Um, uh, so when we talk about aliens, it seems like perhaps they're operating in and maybe an out-of-body sense, or maybe some are, rather than just in-body. Um, and so the idea would be maybe, are they op are some of them operating in like just such a higher morality level or ethics level or sense, maybe not even necessarily ethics, but sense restraint 
um, not being so obsessed with uh, worldly things. And so is that kind of why maybe we don't have the same visibility of them? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that, uh, that we live and share a world with other entities, certainly, and we might call them alien. Um, I happen to think that we're alien to this world, so there's no reason why there wouldn't be other aliens on this planet. Uh, we just don't know who they are or what they are. Um, I think there's animals that live in our atmosphere the same as they live in the oceans. You know, we have some pretty big animals living in our oceans that we don't see very often. And so the atmosphere is probably the only thing larger than the oceans. And there's uh, certainly something living in our atmosphere. Uh, they don't communicate with us. We don't communicate with them. Um, well, thank you so much. And uh, I, I hope you end up doing remote viewing three at the Monroe Institute. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Alicia. Uh, thanks for the answers as well, Joe, on that one. Uh, Mandy, you were up next. You're, you're, you're muted at the moment, Mandy. Good evening, Joe. I should have said good afternoon for you. Uh-huh. I was privileged enough to work with you at the Monroe Institute in 2019. Okay. Which is exactly two years ago this month. Uh-huh. Okay. My question is, if there is no time and space between the remote viewer and the target, is it possible to bring back physical objects? I don't know if anybody's ever brought back a physical object. I... I think it's absolutely possible to create a physical object once you've seen it. Um, so if you can remote view something somewhere and you decide you want to build it, there's no reason why you can't. Um, I've done remote viewings of targets that uh, in their evaluation, they were able to determine exactly what they were, what they did, and they were able to recreate them almost exactly the way I described them. So. I don't see any reason why that's not possible. Um, I don't think I'm telling anybody any secrets out there. there. Um, you know, if I could go somewhere and find something and copy it, well, I already did, but I got in trouble for it. It's not, not a good thing. Okay. And the other question I'd like to ask, I know I'd only ask the one, but there's the other question is, do you think that aliens are actually our etheric selves? Our etheric selves? Yes. No, I would think that I, I, I would first believe that they're probably uh, time travelers and they're here from our future first before I would believe that. Um, uh, our etheric selves uh, it seems to me would have no interest whatsoever in talking to our non-etheric cells. Why? What, what would be the benefit? They already know what we are. So what would there, what would be the benefit for that? Would they be trying to improve us? No, I doubt it. Uh, you know, I just don't, I just don't see any benefit there. Uh, no. 
maybe maybe educate us maybe if, if i could be if i could be more etherically alive and doing what i'm best trained to do then i wouldn't be here talking to me i'd be off doing something better uh, something more valuable or something more reasonable interesting that makes any sense but it does yes i see it the opposite direction of the way you're asking it thank you uh-huh Thanks, guys. And next up was uh, Chris. Hi there. Um, thanks so much for being here. And thanks so much for putting those uh, shows on of those weekly podcasts, uh, Daz. It's much appreciated. Um, I'm fairly new to remote viewing. I've been doing it about, for about three years, and I'm still trying to come to terms with the whole thing. Um, but my question to you basically is, um, how do you see the future? Like, is it set in stone or is it not? Because... Before I went into a session once, I did, you know, I just asked what the target was and I instantly just knew it was going to be, I knew two things. I knew it was going to be a wolf. And I also knew that this particular target was not the wolf, but that would be a different target that I would do later that same day. And that turned out to be actually the case. So for me, that means that the future was already predetermined, right? So after you're almost 50 years of experience, I was just wondering where, where do you stand when it comes to the future being set in stone or, or not? The future is never set in stone, but it's possible to know what the future is. I know that sounds like a dichotomy, but it's not. Um, the future is really a uh, probability of a lot of different parts and pieces coming together the right way. Um, a lot of times we think it happens that way because we get a very shallow, very shallow view of what the future's going to be. And when it turns out that way, we assume that we know all about it and we don't, we don't know anything about it. Um, it's possible to know what the future's going to be to a certain degree. Uh, it's also impossible to know what variation of it's going to occur. Um, like I said, I've been wrong more times than not. It's scary how many times I've been wrong. <laughs> and so there's no perfection in remote viewing. If you expect perfection in remote viewing, you, you're going to be very, very disappointed. You got to understand something about remote viewing. Remote viewing was never designed to tell you anything about what it is you're looking at. It's, it was never designed to be the answer to what you're viewing. It, it was never meant to be seeing anything. It was meant to be perceiving information. Remote viewing was designed to, in a collective way, provide bits and just bits and pieces of information about something that gave you more insight to some extent on how it might be used, why it might be used, who is doing it, why they might be doing it, that sort of thing. It was never intended to be uh, answer unto itself. In other words, a remote viewer that's targeted on a newfangled plane that the Russians might build 
was never expected to describe the Russian plane in absolute detail and tell you all the things you want to know about it. It was meant to, to forewarn us about different bits and pieces of the Russian capability that might be a threat or might not be a threat, that, that kind of thing. Um, remote viewing is not about um, like you want to know how the Great Pyramid was built. So let's target the Great Pyramid and find out how they put it together. Uh, that is not going to happen with remote viewing. Remote viewing is something that would be you would target the Great Pyramid with in order to understand maybe why the Great Pyramid was built at all. Uh, some insight as to how the stones might have been put together. Some insight about um, what the countryside was like or the political situation was like that enabled someone to build a great pyramid. Things like that. Um, it was designed to be used for intelligence collection. It was never designed to be used for answers in their totality about anything. So the probability of getting that out of remote viewing is very, very small. It, it's capable uh, producing information about minute things because it, it's the way it operates, it allows the subconscious mind to be knowledgeable about bits and pieces. It, it does not allow the human mind to put everything together in a righteous way to tell you exactly why something is designed the way it is or how it came out the way it is or anything like that. Uh, it was to give you insight that we don't know or probably don't know yet about threat theory, that sort of thing. Uh, remote viewing, I think, is probably the closest thing to creativity that you can get. In other words, a really good remote viewer is going to be creative. Creativity is something that allows us to improve ourselves or improve uh, our environment or something like that. It's not, it's not an end all to anything. In other words, it's possible that somebody can produce information in remote viewing that tells you something of incredible value uh, if it's a th threat, but beyond that, it doesn't give you much of anything. Um, yeah, I mean, look at what look at what works. Um, how many people have been able to uh, target something specifically and not only describe it in perfect detail, but talk all about the reason why it was made, who it was made for, and that sort of thing. I would tell you if someone does that as a remote viewer, I'd be very suspicious of their source of information. Bits and pieces. That's what remote viewing is good for. If you get really good formative bits and pieces that tell you something unusual about something, you're doing really well as a remote viewer. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Thanks for that one. Uh, and next up is uh, Carl, I believe. You know, um, 
if Christopher would like to go ahead, Joe actually just kind of answered my, my specific question just now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Do you want to go ahead then, Christopher? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, thanks. Hey, hey Joe, how are you doing? All right. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of nervous, but uh, I guess um, so I've been doing remote viewing for about maybe going on three years. Um, before that, I was doing uh, like the silver mine method for several years. I guess it's kind of kind of in a nutshell. Soft hypnosis. I Hemi Stink and Neural Beats. I've been really enjoying those quite a bit, and those have been helping me a lot uh, with you know meditation at night. Um, but as far as the Hemi Sync goes, um, I guess would you would you recommend like maybe I'm not sure not, not so much continuing it, but maybe maybe like using it like as a not so much as a cool down, but as a what what's not I'll tell you what what's good about Hemi Sync and the re the reason I started out using it is uh, Hemi Sync creates a blend of frequencies in the brain that equate very similar similarly to uh, a state of, of mind where it's very close to uh, being in a, what I call an uncontrolled state or a state where you're open to things. Um, where you're not predisposed to think a certain way. Uh, it's a very meditative state. And that's from the 10th state all the way up. And I may not agree or, or I may not agree that some of the frequencies they talk about are doing what they say they're doing. But the uh, certainly the 10th state is a very meditative type of state when you're listening to it. The, the nice thing about the hemisync is when you listen to it frequently enough, you can actually throw it away after a while because what happens is you become entrained to it. In other words, what you would measure with an EEG will occur just simply by closing your eyes and remembering what the sound was. Okay. So it, you, you reach a certain level in tr of entrainment well, that certain level of entrainment is what you want to achieve as a remote viewer because that's where your mind is allowed to present the information you're looking for, whatever that might be. You know, I'm not sure we can dictate what it will be, but it, it's the very it's the very state that you want to be in, so that your mind, your subconscious, can receive information that it can deliver to the conscious mind to play with. And uh, it will happen more frequently when you've been entrained to the use of the 10 state in the uh, hemisync. Now, given that it's true, you can use probably any meditative sound, any sound that's been developed over the years by anybody for achieving a meditative state to do the same thing. Once you've gotten to a point where you can just close your eyes, remember what it sounds like, and it just, your brain just locks right into that same shared frequency response, then it takes care of itself. That's a, that's a condition you want to be in when you get information from your subconscious. And so if you want to be there for a start, then, you know, that's what you want to do. Um, 
if you want to work at it and learn some state on your own or develop your some other methodology in your own head, then don't use it, you know. But I found that it helps immensely in terms of cool down and prepping you on being able to recapture a certain place in your head that you want to be in from a thought standpoint. Uh, you can go from there to almost anything. Certainly Bob Monroe went from there to being out of body. So I, I suspect it could be used for almost anything. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks for that, guys. Dimi, would you like to ask what you want? Hello. Thank you for being here. And I am admiring very much. There mm-hmm. you go. Uh, well, uh, I am asking about your book about uh, the ultimate time machine. You have uh, on the opening uh, quote from self material about uh, that you are forming the future, but you are also forming the past. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the question is can you elaborate on that about the past? I mean, mm-hmm. and and the second one is uh, what's your take on self material, generally speaking. Well- one of the one of the problems you're faced with when you start talking about future or past, the far the farther back you go in the past, the more difficult it is to understand. Simply because we don't reside there, we reside in a different time period. But you go you go far enough into the past with a lot of effort and work, you can figure out kind of how the development took place that got us from there to where we are now. So there's some value in looking at the past and looking at things that have happened in the past, simply because those things exist or we wouldn't be where we are right now. Um, Going into the future is way more difficult. And the reason why is if you go too far into the future or just far enough, in many cases, it could you could go a month into the future and be in just as much trouble as you would be going into a thousand years into the future. But you go far enough into the future uh, for some t- targeted reason, and the concept that allows whatever that targeted reason might be to exist, we don't understand. In other words, um, Look at it this way. If, if we were targeting uh, something in the future that we want to know about, let's say, I don't know, faster than light travel, uh, there's a lot of uh, hypothetical things about faster than light travel that may or may not be true. Some are proven in principle. Some aren't. Uh, some I wouldn't know how to prove, but if you, if you go there and you look at things like faster and light travel, the difficulty is the concept that supports it doesn't exist yet. In other words, nobody's worked out the, the rules and the, the engineering requirements. So we lack big, big chunks and pieces of understanding for why it might even be possible. Uh, it's extremely difficult to pick things out of the future that are going to tell us what is possible and what isn't possible because we just haven't engineered it to that degree yet. So we don't know 
what is possible. Uh, so going to the future is extremely difficult because things just haven't been worked out yet. Um, hypothetically speaking, no, no one's in, no one's made it happen yet. So how do we know? You know, that kind of thing. Just very complex, very difficult to, to isolate information by going into the future that tells us anything of value because we, we just don't understand how the future is put together. The concepts don't exist yet. Uh, that kind of issue. Um, but, you know, never, you know, you might get lucky going in the future. I don't know. It's the reason why the future is so difficult to predict. Uh, the concepts don't exist yet. And if the concepts did exist, we don't understand how to bring them together to make it do what we want it to do. So uh, I think it's a waste of time, personally. Uh, I gave it a good shot, and it didn't work. So, Or at least most of it didn't work. Um, I don't need to know about the future. The future's bad enough. <laughs> now it's bad enough. Future is even worse, probably. I don't know. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, Joe, do you still have five or ten more minutes to answer some of the questions I have in the chat here? Uh, let's do two more, and then I got to go, and we can do this again sooner than later. Yeah, okay. that's great. Uh, the first one is actually from Dimmy. She asked earlier, and she would like to know your point of view on any taskers, biases, beliefs, or concerns in relation to the target, and if this extends to the remote viewer at times. Uh, say that again. She would like to know your point of view on any task or biases or their beliefs or concerns about the target and if that uh, extends to the remote viewer and they pick up on that? Yeah, it, there shouldn't be any biases affecting it. The only way the bias could affect it would be if you're wondering what they want to hear. And that shouldn't be your tasking. My tasking, I will tell you, I have a tasking thing that I give myself because most time, most of the time when somebody comes and wants me to do a remote viewing, the tasking they give me is wrong. They don't know, they don't know a thing about tasking. Uh, I've been studying tasking now for probably 30 years in the lab. So tasking is a really complex problem. Um, so I've decided to give myself a tasking that I use whenever I feel like I'm not getting anything through the tasking the person gave me, the client gave me. Uh, the, the way I think of it is this, let me give them something that's gonna make them really happy. That seems to work really well. Do they get what they want? Almost in every case. Is it something they already pre-believe? Probably. Excellent. Well, let's leave it there then, Joe, because you you know you've been gracious to give us an hour. And I, on behalf of the uh, seventy LPP, I want to thank you for this uh, and answering the questions, and for all the years you've been doing the RV and helping us out in your books and all the information and your, all your service. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I I understand some. I don't know everything. All I the things that I can quote to you and say to you that I know to be true, or what I've seen proven in science. Um. We just published uh, four, four volumes of the science. Uh, it's 1.4 million words. They trimmed it down from 1.8 million words. 
It's uh, 45 years of the science of remote viewing. And uh, if you have ideas you want to... I have them here. Yeah, if you have ideas you want to think about, well, buy these volumes and look at what you're thinking about in there first because it's probably been done. And it's either failed or it's been successful or it hasn't been done yet. It hasn't been tried. But, you know, take the time to go to a library and ask if they have these four volumes. That would be an even better thing because then other people can check them out. Uh, but but check the science out and find out whether or not they've already uh, they've already explored that or not. Uh, in all probability they have because uh, the science is over fifty years old. Uh, people come up with great ideas and they go, "Well, why can't it be this way?" Well, I can tell you, the science probably says it can't be um, for very good reasons and. Given almost any question, you can go into these into the science and find a reason why it it probably is or probably isn't, or if it has never been investigated. So that, that's my recommendation. Um, uh, and, and, even, and try to have fun with remote viewing. Everything becomes so serious with some people. You, you don't want to do that. Have fun with the remote viewing. You won't get as frustrated. You won't get as angry with yourself and you do a lot better. Okay. Just have fun with it. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for those final points. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to you again, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And everyone Joe's right on those. They're amazing books. I've got those. Uh, and you know, they put the Stargate files online many years ago, but they're so messed up. These books, putting them in such a coherent order and all the feedback and all the information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's really what's really funny about the books is everything everything in the science of remote viewing was no foreign means no release to foreign nationals, and one of the two senior editors and who put the science all together is a foreign national. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, thank you, Joe, for sharing all the time with us, yeah. and thanks for coming along. Anyway, Hopefully, we can do I this again. I think that that's a riot. Yeah. Yeah, talk to you later. Yeah, thank, thank you, everyone. Thanks for all the great questions as well. Take care and have a good weekend. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. See, see you soon. Thank you, Jess. Bye. Thank Take care. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.